Welcome, fellow adventurer. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, and you have tuned your shortwave dial to Renegade Files, the podcast created to bring you high-quality presentations on the paranormal, the unexplained, and the downright conspiratorial. Renegade Files comes to you from deep in the uncharted tropics as we broadcast our pirate radio signal from the secret headquarters of the Jungle Villa Outpost. This is Renegade Files episode number 9, the Phoenix Lights UFO event. On March 13, 1997 in Arizona, thousands of witnesses saw, photographed, and reported various configurations of lights in the night sky. These objects ranged from three orange spheres to an enormous V-shaped craft that was miles across and displayed similar orange lights. This larger craft was sometimes followed by separate orange orbs matching the descriptions of the spheres sometimes seen independent of this larger craft. The following days, months, and at this point, years failed to provide any conclusive explanation for the event, and it is a tale filled with government pranks, ridiculed officials, scrambled fighter jets, and a large number of insistent credible witnesses. In this episode of Renegade Files, we will explore the events that took place that clear spring night, dive into witness descriptions, photos, and videos, then examine the theories put forth by the officials in their attempts to explain away the Phoenix Lights UFO event. UFO event. UFO event. UFO event. Part 1. 10,000 Witnesses On July 23, 1995, two amateur astronomers, Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, one of whom didn't even own a telescope, independently discovered what would come to be known as the Hale-Bopp Comet. Hale had spent hundreds of hours searching for unknown comets, and on this night he had finally found one that no one else had ever identified. He emailed the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams, which has been the official clearinghouse for all new astronomical discoveries since the 1920s and is probably overdue for a name change. Thomas Bopp was looking through his friend's telescope when he noticed a bright object that didn't match any stars on the star map they had and in what has to be one of the most remarkable combinations of observational confidence and pure faith ever recorded, he sent an actual telegram to the Bureau on the same night, and the rest is history. The Hale-Bopp comet became visible to the naked eye in May of 1996, and was visible at various locations in Earth's night sky for 18 months. By April of 1997, the Hale-Bopp comet had developed into a dazzlingly bright object with a large glowing tail. 
the growing apparent size and brightness of Hale-Bopp in the months leading up to its most impressive display brought scores of people out each night across the entire northern hemisphere from which the comet was visible. This astronomical event is, in a large part, responsible for the Phoenix Lights event becoming what is indisputably the largest mass UFO sighting in modern history. By some estimations, the unexplained Phoenix Lights were seen by at least 10,000 people. This sighting happened on a clear spring night on March 13, 1997, and being outside to look at the stars had become a common pastime for thousands of people in the process of watching the Hale-Bopp comet grow visibly larger and more dramatic over the previous weeks. So let's look into a few of the reports from that night to get a better idea of exactly what it was that people saw. Dr. Lynn Kitai photographed lights of the same color and formations two years before the major Phoenix Lights event from the vantage point of her home balcony that overlooks the valley and the city lights of Phoenix. When these lights returned to pass over the entire state as well as Phoenix once again, Dr. Lynn Kitai and her husband, also a medical doctor, photographed and filmed the crafts from their mountainside home. Dr. Lynn Kitai led an investigation of her own, speaking to many officials at the airports, public safety agencies, and the nearby military base. She was told by one air traffic controller that he had seen the lights through binoculars, but that no images appeared on the air traffic control radar at that time. Dr. Kitai has since written a book entitled The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Tom Chavez, a former law enforcement officer who had started his own private investigation agency, was out that night parked in his car on 27th Avenue and Van Buren Street in Arizona doing paperwork for a case he was working on. Lights moving across the sky caught his eye and he looked to watch orange lights in a V formation moving in complete unison slowly across the sky at what he described as a slow but steady pace. He said that the lights didn't emit a glare or a beam, and that there seemed to be some deepness to them. George Judson, a graphic artist, saw from his outdoor deck the same formation pass very low and silently over his home. He said he would gauge the object as being as large as one mile wide or more, and that he was struck by the sheer size of the object. Terry Mansfield, a hospice volunteer and the CEO of the Arizona Department of Peace, was on a patio outside at an Arizona home having a meeting with five other hospice volunteers when they all saw an object that was large, V-shaped, blocked out the stars for about a mile in each direction from its front point, had rows of orange lights along each arm of the V, moved slowly at a low altitude, and made no sound at all. So as we're going through some of this witness testimony, I want to play you just a few short clips from some of the witnesses themselves. I think it gives a really good sense of the urgency and honesty in their voices when you hear it straight from them. And this audio is just used for editorial purposes and it comes from the UFO documentary I Know What I Saw by James Fox 
and I'll put a link to that documentary where you can get it in the show notes. So these are just a few of the witnesses, and I wanted you to hear it just in their own voices. It's powerful. It's coming across the sky, and as it's moving, it's blocking and unblocking the stars. There is actually a shape. It was actually five lights that were a V, one in front and two on each side, and it was perfect. It was a perfect triangle. If you can imagine something the size of Camelback Mountain floating down Scottsdale Road, you have some idea of the intensity of this thing. The object we saw, if we opened up a newspaper, you could not block out the object that we saw. People say, Mike, now you saw a B-2 bomber. My response was, we could land all 40 of our B-2 bombers on the wing of that craft. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest things I've ever seen that, uh, that moved like that. I mean, it was just enormous. I don't know if it was as big as an aircraft carrier. It might have been, because I've never seen an aircraft carrier fly. <laughs> <laughs> So all that sounds very credible and like powerful testimony to me. Mike Fortson, a U.S. Navy Honor Guard member, described the object as, quote, awesome. And that as he was watching it, he was consciously telling himself to not blink. Fortson said that when pilots make the turn to head toward the Salt River to the north of his location, they are at about 3,000 feet. He said that this object was below that altitude. He also said that from his vantage point, he could clearly see one of the object's two wings, the side closest to him, and the other lights angled off under it away from him. He measured the length of the wing, or the closest side of the V, with his hands and outstretched arms, and translated the object's width based on his estimated altitude to landmarks he was familiar with on the ground And by doing this, he estimated the single side wing to be one mile long. One witness who chose to remain nameless and who was a pilot with 40 years of experience and who has flown military fighter jets, military helicopters, and commercial airliners said that he watched orange lights in a V-shaped formation fly slowly overhead. He said the craft displayed no navigation or safety lights and made no sound, and that the lights of the formation moved in perfect synchronicity and displayed no glare, but were a solid, glowing, incandescent constant. The Luke Air Force Base scrambled fighter jets to presumably investigate what the craft was, and one witness, a truck driver, saw the jets as they flew up to the enormous, slow-moving object, and when they approached it, the enormous object moved vertically in an instant out of sight and was gone. According to one specific report, U.S. Air Force F-15 fighter jets were purposely scrambled on a mission to intercept the unidentified objects. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Ph.D. and Apollo 14 astronaut, said, quote, The Phoenix Lights phenomenon didn't seem to be falsifiable in any way. Tom Brunty, a graduate of ASU, described the lights as, quote, So rich and lustrous, it's almost as if the objects seem to be comprised of the light itself. But imagine if you could that light would have a material property, 
It's almost as if the orb was crafted out of light. They were perfectly uniformly round. They were perfectly uniformly equidistant. These are just a few of the thousands of witnesses who saw these unidentified objects that night. The craft and the accompanying smaller lights were seen to pass from Arizona's northern border near Lake Powell, across Flagstaff in the north, along the I-17 corridor, directly over the valley where Phoenix resides, over the airspace of the Sky Harbor International Airport, and then on to Casa Grande in the south and beyond, a distance of roughly 300 miles, from 5.30 p.m. that evening until 2 a.m. the next morning. Verlene Anneman, who was a Phoenix Police Department dispatcher and 911 call center operator, said the first calls began to come in from the northern territories of her range and the call origins moved south apparently with the crafts, until the object moved out of the city and beyond. She said in this time, she and the 14 other operators were all swamped with hundreds of calls. All of the callers described seeing a silent, V-shaped array of lights, with some reporting two other lights either trailing or docking with, then departing from, the larger craft, as it moved slowly across the sky at a low altitude. And these witnesses were a wide cross-section of people including truck drivers, lawyers, doctors, military personnel, air traffic controllers on duty, active and former police officers, nurses, small business owners, firefighters, teachers, and even little league coaches together with their entire teams who saw the object, and on and on. The next day, this dispatcher combed through the local newspaper hoping to find some answers to the events from the night before. She found only one short article that described the overall sighting and included a quote from the police department where she worked, which said that that department had only received a few calls about the lights in the sky the night before. A few weeks later, on May 6, 1997, Frances Barwood, a Phoenix City Councilwoman, was on her way to a city council meeting when she was approached by a reporter at the entrance to the building. The reporter said they had asked the office of the mayor if there was any answer as to what the lights witnessed by so many in March had been and that, as of yet, they had gotten no answer. The reporter asked if Councilmember Francis Barwood could make an inquiry in the meeting to find out if there was any official explanation for the lights. In the meeting, Barwood asked if there was a way to look into or ascertain the source of the lights so many had seen on March 13. She was basically laughed at in the meeting, her question went ignored, and within days she was being ridiculed in the press. After the press reported that she had been denied resources to investigate what the lights were, her office received thousands of calls, her voicemail was overrun, and callers began leaving messages for her on other council members' lines. She and her staff returned every single call. She herself spoke to over 700 people. She held town hall meetings with citizens who had seen 
photographed and videotaped the objects. She wrote then-Senator John McCain asking for any information or help he could generate to determine exactly what the objects were. And McCain did reply, but merely by sending a single letter to Barwood and filing that letter in the National Archives, which essentially accomplishes nothing. In the end, City Councilwoman Barwood said every single person she and her office spoke with told the same story except one who was a young boy who said that he had seen the lights and that they were airplanes. Of the hundreds of stories she submitted to local and regional newspapers, that boy's account was reprinted far more than any other witness account at the time. This story just gets better and better. Visit our merchandise shop through the link in the show notes and grab some cool gear. Doing so will make it possible for Renegade Files to keep bringing you deep research and high-quality reports on amazing subjects just like this one. And join the Renegade Files agency on Patreon to get bonus content and help the show stay free and ad-free. A small amount from you makes a huge difference toward keeping the show going. Thanks. So after about three months of questions from the likes of Francis Barwood, Dr. Lynn Katai, and thousands of other citizens from all walks of life who made calls and sent emails to the city, the state, and military officials, the governor finally called a press conference. At this media event, Governor Fife Symington announced that his office had identified the culprit responsible for the mass UFO sighting. Governor Symington then brought out one of his staff members dressed in a silver costume with a huge alien head mask and handcuffed. The governor then pulled off the mask to reveal his aide's face and the two of them shared a brief, awkward laugh. Awkward because no one else was laughing. Now I can appreciate the guy having a sense of humor about the whole thing, but after months of dead-end questions and fruitless inquiries, The public at large took the stunt as an insult and the majority of Arizona, and especially Phoenix residents, felt like they were being mocked. However, since then, former Governor Symington has not only admitted to seeing the enormous craft himself that night, but, as a pilot, has gone on to speak at many UFO conferences and on news stories to make compelling arguments for an extraterrestrial explanation of this event. And on the subject of explanations, this brings us to the next part of this episode. Part 2. The Official Explanations The Phoenix Lights UFO mass sighting is one of those events that have generated multiple mundane explanations put forth by officials to assure the public that there is nothing to see here. As far as cases like this go, the explanations offered up in the media as being the end-all be-all answers to the Phoenix Light sightings of March 13, 1997 are quickly revealed to be implausible with even the slightest bit of scrutiny. Normally, we would go over the explanations in one section, then analyze each one in turn in another section of the episode to see what we think of the possibilities we find. But in this case, we only need to describe the prevailing mundane explanations of the Phoenix Lights events 
then deconstruct each one on the fly because the impossibilities of each explanation are so readily identified. To put it bluntly, the official explanations of the Phoenix Lights UFOs are far harder to believe than the witness accounts of the event itself. First, we have the claim that the Phoenix Lights were simply airplanes, which was the explanation put forth by one young boy who claimed to have seen the lights from his driveway which was a story that was widely distributed by local and regional newspapers and TV programs in the weeks after the event. Airplanes are not a mile wide. Airplanes are not silent. Airplanes cannot fly at 30 miles per hour. Airplane lights have glare and include strobe lights for safety and red and green navigation lights for visibility. No such lights, of any such color, or with glare, and no such airplane noise, was reported by any of the thousands of people who witnessed the Phoenix Lights event. Then we have the official military claim that the objects seen were flares deployed by the Air Force's Barry M. Goldwater Firing Range in Phoenix at 9.30 and 10 o'clock p.m. Flares dropped from aircraft over this installation would not be seen by 10,000 people from the top of Arizona to the state's southern border over a distance of 300 miles and for a period of over 8 hours from 5.30 p.m., 4 hours before the flares were dropped, until 2 a.m. or so, which is 4 hours after the flares were dropped. Flares create glare, which the Phoenix Lights craft or orbs did not display. Flares illuminate their parachutes and their own smoke, which no one saw. Flares would not move for long durations in perfectly fixed positions relative to one another. The military would not drop burning magnesium flares over the city of Phoenix. And if the lights were flares dropped from the Air Force base, why would the Air Force then have to scramble fighter jets to go see what they were? One debunker who made the news rounds claimed that he caused the UFO panic by releasing several Chinese lanterns that night. A Chinese lantern is a miniature hot air balloon made of paper, string, and a sterno fuel source which creates a very pretty, glowing, floating form of burning litter. Chinese lanterns fail to account for this sighting for some of the same reasons that the idea of flares falls short. You wouldn't see them over 300 miles for 8 hours and they wouldn't remain at fixed positions relative to each other and 10,000 people wouldn't all think they were a mile-wide UFO. Finally, and we couldn't have a UFO story without this treasured debunker's sacred cow, the mass hallucination. The reality is that the concept of mass hallucination is largely fiction. Mass delusion may be a better description for some of the things to which large groups of people fall prey. One example would be the Salem witchcraft trials, which were little more than a frenzied land grab where courts persecuted citizens in order to confiscate property after convictions, 
and where housewife neighbors ratted out witch neighbors in fits of jealousy fueled by cheating husbands. And in a short time, due to all of the gossip, people started to believe there were witches everywhere. But there was never an account of 10,000 people all seeing a witch fly over the town at once. And the Phoenix Lights being some mass hallucination where thousands upon thousands of people all imagined that they saw a huge UFO and glowing orbs at the same exact time is preposterous. Not only that, there are photographs and videos of these lights and the craft, many. So thousands of people photographed the same hallucination and we can all see the objects in the photos and videos? Okay. Summary and Conclusions This is one of the most intriguing UFO cases we've covered on Renegade Files so far. This event is undeniably one of the largest mass UFO sightings both in terms of the numbers of people who witnessed it and the sheer size of the craft. It happened at a time when people had access to cameras and video recorders, and it should silence all of the skeptics who are so quick to ask why, if we all have cameras, do we not have photos and videos of UFOs? We do. This is one of the most documented sightings ever as far as photographic records are concerned. I'll put a few of the Phoenix Lights video links in the show notes so you can see them for yourself. Also, tap the Patreon link in the show notes for even more documents, photos, videos, and articles I've gathered for you while researching this case. You may have noticed I don't put ads in the episodes. I do that for you because ads are annoying. You can support that policy by joining the Renegade Files agency on Patreon for a small donation. It helps the show stay free and ad-free, and it also gets you more cool content. Thanks. Arizona and the surrounding states are a hotbed of UFO activity that goes back to Roswell and well before. Native American tribes in the area refer to the crafts and even the occupants as the Star People. One story detailed in the book, Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians, written by Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, a professor at Montana State University and a Native American of Choctaw and Cherokee heritage, tells the story of a boy and his grandfather who, in 1945, discovered a crashed craft on their property near this same area. The boy, Harrison, was 12 at the time and, as an older man, he told of the encounter. For several weeks, they interacted with beings who survived the crash and described them as being eight feet tall, with translucent skin, green clothing, and large eyes that changed colors. They said the beings could vanish and reappear at will. These beings took the grandfather aboard the crashed ship and he described screens that could display color images of all manner of places and things and a seat that when sat in wrapped around the occupant like an envelope. The beings communicated with the tribal elder telepathically 
in much the same way as the children in the aerial school encounter described in our previous episode. These beings told him about their history and their ways of life. They said that their kind had been visiting Earth for thousands of years, but rarely interacted with humans and only came to observe. They said that two other ships had been with them when their ship crashed, and that they were attempting to repair their communication tools in order to call for help. Eventually, a large cylindrical ship appeared over the crash site, and the next day, the downed craft and the visitors were gone. Days later, the U.S. military arrived, fenced off the area, confiscated the grandfather's entire ranch, and dug out a large lake that covered the area of the crash. This story is a cool one. It doesn't prove anything about the Phoenix Lights UFOs specifically, but it does point to a long history of otherworldly activity in the southwest areas of the United States. Roswell is in this territory. Socorro, New Mexico was the site of a famous UFO crash. The Travis Walton abduction case took place in an Arizona national forest. A study done by Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller collected data from 2001 to 2020 and concluded that Sedona, Arizona is home to the most UFO sightings in the entire United States. Both before and since the 1997 Phoenix Lights mass sightings, similar objects have appeared in Phoenix and the surrounding areas multiple times. The large V-shaped object and the smaller orbs seen in the 1997 Phoenix Lights UFO event flew very low. One report stated that the craft's altitude was below South Mount, which is a 2,690-foot tall rock outcropping within the city of Phoenix. From some perspectives, the lights were seen to pass in front of or behind this landmark. Another report describes the large object as appearing below a plane on its final turn in the approach to Sky Harbor International Airport, which would also place the craft below 3,000 feet. The unknown object passed through restricted airspace of at least this international airport and possibly the Air Force Base. Some have suggested that the silent craft could have been a blimp, but I've read more than one account stating that blimps are limited to a certain size due to weight and gaseous lift restrictions, and the only way a blimp that had two one-mile arms in a single V shape could both float and not collapse upon itself would be if the craft were at a very high altitude where the air is thin, such as nearly in low Earth orbit, hundreds of miles high and we know the Phoenix Lights craft was below 3,000 feet. No one can say for sure what the Phoenix Lights were, but it seems clear that the debunking tales that some cling to hold no valid arguments, and most of them are simply impossible. Trig Johnson, a retired commercial airline pilot who lived in North Scottsdale at the time, saw the lights with his 22-year-old son who was outside looking for the Hale-Bopp Comet. Johnson said, quote, It was the size of 25 airliners, 
moving at about a hundred knots and maybe five thousand feet, and it did not make a sound. I have flown 747s across oceans and not seen anything like I saw that night. I don't expect anyone to take my word for it. This was something you had to see for yourself to believe. The Phoenix Lights UFO event of 1997 is one of the best examples of what can only be called a genuine mass UFO sighting. Thousands of people described an enormous object in the sky. Some also saw smaller objects accompanying it. No official explanation makes any sense. And the descriptions of credible people from all walks of life are remarkably consistent. People watched the object. Most say it was at least a mile wide and maybe even twice as large. And it moved silently and slowly over a stretch of 300 miles. Not only that, we have multiple photos and videos of the lights. And professional image analysts have concluded that the lights are genuine artifacts captured by the cameras that the characteristics of the lights are inconsistent with aircraft lights, flares, lanterns, stars, or any other light source we know of. As far as a genuine UFO sighting, I can't imagine asking for much more. I think that the 1997 Phoenix Lights UFO event is one of the most fascinating and unexplained UFO sightings of modern times. That area continues to produce credible UFO activity to this day. I'd love to visit the area someday and check out all that Arizona has to offer. Also, as I understand it, in Arizona, they don't change the clocks twice a year for a reason that no one can seem to figure out. That alone is a good enough reason for me to go there. In conclusion, I have to mention a very skeptical article at Inverse.com that even states at the top of their page, quote, We know UFOs are a myth. That article lists six UFO sightings with the site's own 1 to 5 realness scale. Their score for the Phoenix Light events, in their own words, 5 out of 5. Realness, too real. We are actually a bit uncomfortable. So, as far as my formal research for this case, that's all I've really got. I mean, there are thousands of witnesses, like I've said. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of quotes by people that you can find and read and verify. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of articles that have quotes from people that are cited in the articles. You can watch a lot of video on it. Several documentaries have been made. There have been documentaries on the History Channel and on the Discovery Channel about this case. I mean, it was just one of those things that was undeniable because thousands and thousands of people saw it. They took pictures of it. They videotaped it. It was all over the news. It's one of those cases that is very unique for that reason. It is a mass UFO sighting. You know, so many times you're talking about the word of two or three people, and that could be anything. They could have seen something and they could have gotten it wrong, but at the same time, tens of thousands of people over a distance of 300 miles all watched essentially the same thing move very slow and very low and go over their heads and make no sound. And you're talking about pilots who say, that thing was enormous. I was struck by how big it was. I could not believe it could move and not make a sound. 
that sort of thing. And then people say, oh, well, then it was a blimp. No, there's no such thing as a blimp that's a mile across with two one-mile arms shaped like a V that can fly between 3,000 and 150 feet off the ground. They collapse under their own weight in that type of atmosphere. Experts say that a blimp that large has to be nearly in low Earth orbit and that it's just not something that's going to come that low across the ground. And, you know, I I don't know what the explanation is. I I know it's not flares. That seems like if if there's a military base there and there's a firing range and they deploy flares then they, they've been doing it there since 1941, people say. So if they're dropping flares, the, the residents know what flares look like. Why all of a sudden, since 1941, they've been dropping flares over there, and now 10,000 people think it's a UFO? It just doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of, little, lot of ins and outs to this story. I think that what is interesting to me about it is that you have thousands upon thousands of people seeing it. They're all outside looking for the Hale-Bopp comet, so they're looking up. When this thing comes over, it almost gives you the feeling that it was that it was done on purpose, that whatever this craft was, was doing this in order to be seen. I don't know. It just, you sort of have that feeling. You know, one witness that night was actor Kurt Russell, so Snake Plissken, and he was piloting his own private plane and his son was with him. They both saw what Kurt Russell described as glowing lights in an absolute V formation over the airport. So you've got famous people, you've got credible people, you've got doctors, pilots, firefighters, policemen, uh, you know, like I said earlier, all walks of life, sober people, people who are out looking at the sky, they see this thing, they all say it was enormous, it was miles in size. You just really have to stop and think about what that would look like. It would shock you. And these people are shocked and you can tell, you can hear it in their voices. I think it's a cool story. It's one of my favorites. It's one that I had heard of a very long time ago. And I remember watching some of the documentaries and and looking at some of the footage and being, being astounded that there is this video record and a lot of photographs. And they're clear for the mid-90s or the late 90s. They all show essentially the same thing. One of them looks a little more white and one of them looks a little more orange, but they're basically the same. And Dr. Katai, who wrote the book, The Phoenix Lights, she said that the photographs that she took or the videos that she took did not do it justice and that the lights appeared to be more white, you know, in the video or in the photographs. And that when you looked at them with the naked eye, they appeared more orange or sort of that that amber color that people describe. And so that's very interesting because some of the footage shows this sort of arc of white lights and, you know, skeptics use that to say, well, how come that one's white and how come the other ones are orange? And what I think it comes down to is just different equipment and different exposure and you're not dealing with professional photographers for the most part and people are just grabbing their little handy cam and filming off the back of their porch because, oh my God, there's something in the sky that's like a mile wide. It's not making any noise. It's gliding over the house. Somebody get the camera. When you get back that footage or when you see it, when you play it back, sometimes the color will be a little bit off. I mean, it happens all the time. Go out and take a picture of the sunset and then look at it on your camera and you'll say, wow, it's a kind of a good picture, but it doesn't do the vibrant color justice. You know, that happens all the time. And there's another thing that I've often said to people who are skeptics and they always say, well, Everyone has a cell phone now. Why don't we have a a good picture of a UFO? So do this sometime. 
go to a place where you know there are airplanes, like an airport. You don't even have to be close to it, a mile away from an airport. Go there at night and wait for a plane to land and take out your iPhone, even the most modern iPhone that there is, and take a picture of a plane flying at night and then look at it and see what it looks like. And ask yourself, if you saw a UFO, what would it look like? Would it look like a classic saucer with lights and everything? I mean, maybe. I guess it depends on how close you are to the thing. I don't know. But it's absolutely interesting, and it's cool to hear the people talk about it, and it's cool to look at the photographs and watch the videos and sort of get a feel for what it might have been like on that night. I think this is a case where a lot of people really stepped up and and did grab their camera and did grab their video recorder and get some footage of of these lights and we have them now it's interesting you know so what would you think i mean we know that it's probably not flares i know a lot of people hold to that explanation and it's just because that's what the military says but if there's a military base and they're dropping flares since 1941 over there why would the citizens all on one night decide that those flares are a ufo that's a mile wide it doesn't make sense When you listen to people that are pilots and firefighters, trained observers, the things that they say are compelling. So, I don't know. I think this is a great story. It's a great case. There's a lot of information here, and most of it is witness testimony, and then it's backed up by photographs and videos. It's incredible. Another thing that adds a level of interest to this case is the fact that it happens in Arizona and there's a ton of UFO activity out there. You know, you're talking about the city with the most UFOs spotted in the whole United States right in that area. You've got Area 51, you've got all of these installations and you've got a ton of UFO history there going all the way back to the Native Americans who occupied that territory at a certain time. And it's just, it's incredible the way that it sort of just persists like that. A lot of times, events are connected to the land in a different way than we give it credit for. And, you know, in our modern world, we hustle and bustle, and we kind of imagine the land as something that we build upon. It's like the dirt where we lay the road to drive our cars over or whatever. And, you know, we forget that land has a memory and it has personality. And that's why different places in the country have different vibes and different feelings. There's history there. There's there's memory there and those kind of things are important and i think a a place like phoenix arizona there's a reason that a ufo flew from one end of that state to the other because maybe they've been doing it for thousands of years and that might be their route we imagine that they're flying down our interstate but they might be like the birds that come back to the parking lot hoping that the marsh suddenly reappears there as quickly as it disappeared you know i mean we just don't know these are what mysteries are made of the the fact that you don't know that's what a mystery is and i know that it really bothers some people when there's not a clear-cut answer some people love a mystery they love to dig they love to wonder and some people it really bothers them you know and if you have friends like that you know you got to give give them some respect for their sensibilities and not really bust their chops a lot about something that obviously might really upset them i mean i know i do (laughs) I got to be careful around some of my friends and some of my family that, you know, sometimes they'll ask me a question and and a lot of times I'll have to say, do you really want me to tell you or are you just kind of asking me to be cool or whatever? Because if someone says like, well, what do you think about uh, JFK and you think Lee Harvey Oswald did it? And it's like, well, do you really want to sit down and have like a three hour conversation about this or do you just want like my little like sound clip answer or whatever? I don't know. That's that's what makes doing the podcast fun. You know, I get to talk 
and I get to give you information and I get to let you know all of the things that I find out in the process of digging deep into stories like this. And man, this is one of the coolest. This is one of those things that you just can't explain with some like swamp gas kind of thing, you know? There's always going to be those kind of answers. And the reason those answers come up is because people are compelled to put some label on something. They're compelled to give something a name. They're compelled to organize things. And when you end up with a situation like this, where 10,000 people saw something that no one can explain, you're always going to have a bunch of people who say, oh yeah, well, I can explain it. It was a flare or whatever, or it was a plane. Oh yeah, so you 10,000 people saw a plane and all of you thought it was a mile wide. But you're wrong because that's impossible and I'm right because planes are possible. That's the kind of like compulsion to answer a question or to know an answer. And a lot of times those are the people who love the news. They love the mainstream media. Why? Because it gives them an answer and that's good enough. That's more important to some people to just have an answer than to have the truth. So anyway, that's my rant for tonight. And I hope you loved listening to this episode as much as I loved making it. Thank you so much for joining me on the investigation into the Phoenix Lights UFO event. I hope you had fun hearing all the ins and outs of this remarkable event. I'm going camping this weekend within sight of Kennedy Space Center and the headquarters of NASA, and you can be sure that I'll have my telescope, night vision, stargazer app, camera, and audio recording gear along for the trip. I'm going to make a bonus episode focused on the adventure, and if you're a Renegade Files Agency member on Patreon, you can check it out. This is your host, Lex Gordon. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renegade Files crew. Stay wild, galactic child.